welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast with me, your host, Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. So I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to explore new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we need to be aware that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Welcome to the second half of the conversation I have with Dr. Yeshaya Gruber about the name of God. Last week, we covered topics such as the difference between God's personal name as yod Hey vav Hey, and the descriptive names we have for God, such as El-Roy or El-Shaddai. Dr. Gruber also pointed out one of the significant reasons to know God's name as it was used in Hebrew is because this personal name of God is used over 6,000 times in the Hebrew Bible alone. And we miss the richness associated with that name when we read the English translations that say, Lord God. In this half of the conversation with IBC scholar, Dr. Yeshaya Gruber, we continue to discuss the significance of God's personal name, yod Hey vav Hey. You may remember from last week when Dr. Gruber mentioned that a name can mean a remembrance or a reputation, and that when God talks about his own name, it is within the context of something essential about how he is to be known. I asked Dr. Gruber to expand on that concept, and he jumped right into the book of Leviticus. Before we get there, I'll mention IBC has a course on Leviticus and the New Testament. So if you're curious to hear more about the interesting secrets in this often ignored book, you can sign up to take that course. But for what we can learn about God's name and his reputation from Leviticus, well, let's go back to Dr. Gruber. But in Leviticus, for example, God gives rules about which animals can be eaten and which can't be. Mm -hmm. And so this is linked to a categorization of tomato, uh, clean and unclean. Yeah. Then after going through all of this list of like whether you can eat vultures and rabbits and cows and pigs and, you know, locusts and which, which ones out of all these different animals you can eat or not eat, the justification, so to speak, is that you shall be kadosh, hmm. you shall be set apart, hmm. um, because I, yud Yahweh, your God, am holy, am kadosh. And that's the reason why you don't eat certain animals. That, of course, raises many questions and leads yeah. to food for thought. But the point <laughs> is here that somehow this uh, law that to many people in the modern world doesn't seem very relevant, was seen in, in this text as tied to the very nature yeah. of the God of Israel, the creator of the universe. And this points us back to earlier passages, you know, in Genesis and so forth, that, that this God is the creator, created those animals, created the clean ones and the unclean ones. There's a separation even at the time of Noah, clean and unclean animals. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about the purpose for that. And, yeah. you know, what is the intentionality behind this creation? And what is the relationship of the creator yeah. with the creation? So 
while I can't necessarily explain the exact correlation, you know, between um, eating one kind of animal or not eating another kind of animal, this is telling us it's not just a technical thing. It's something related to the nature of the creator as a being. God says, "You you shall place my name on this people. And that's what separates Israel from the other peoples. Yeah. And there's a lot of discussion, debate, argument about the idea of a chosen people. And, you know, whether God really chose one people, which is what the Bible claims, out of all the nations of the earth. First of all, it makes a lot more sense when you think of this ancient context, where it's not just this particular God, Yotevafe, choosing a people, but lots of other gods chose their peoples first, in fact. So you, maybe, maybe first. So you have you have this context where these other peoples in the region have their gods and they they believe they are chosen by mm-hmm. that god and the king believes that he is chosen by that god and then along comes yudhevave into the story and says look i'm picking this nation not the biggest not the brightest not the smartest not the <laughs> fastest right. not the strongest in fact the weakest and the least numerous and yeah. some sometimes the most stubborn um i'm going to pick them and i'm going to put my name on this people. And that's that's the separation that the Torah is talking about. So yeah. what does it mean that God is set apart? Well, in, in modern language, when we think of modern monotheism, there's only one God. It doesn't really mean anything. How can God be set apart, which is what kadosh or holy mm-hmm. really means? Set apart from what? But yeah. if you look at it in the ancient context, it makes perfect sense. I mean, there are all, all of these different kami, to go back to our original yeah. discussion, but this one is different. This one is right. set apart. This is a different kind of Elohim. And he's going to make a people that is also a different kind of people that is set apart in a different way. Another detail I was interested in is why is it that with so many Jewish and Christian scholars interested in the name of God, along with the plethora of scholars studying the Hebrew language, And with our modern-day access to all sorts of different documents, why is it that the pronunciation, much less the exact meaning of the name, remains a mystery? Well, in some ways, even today, the name of God reflects the essence of the Creator Himself. You know, we could say that God is the most ever-present or let's say Yudhevafe, even this particular God, uh, to be more accurate from a Hebrew point of view, this this particular God is the most ever-present reality of mm. our universe, of our existence, and at the same time, the most mysterious aspect of our universe and our existence. So, in a couple days at uh, IBC, we're actually planning a seminar on Jewish and Greek thought. Mm. Now, I don't know which one will come out first, the podcast or the seminar, but people can definitely. <laughs> look for that as well. And the reason I mention that is because in the Hebrew and the Greek mindsets, the ancient Hebrew and Greek mindsets, knowledge means something a little bit different in each culture. Mm. So for the Greeks, knowledge meant something very similar to our modern Western Western way of thinking, for example, you know, to to define precise facts um, and be able to describe them and so forth. Um, So if you're, if you want to know about water, you want to know it's, uh, you know, what chemicals mm-hmm. make up water. You want to know the boiling point. You want to know the freezing point. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to know the quantity of water in the universe and so forth and so on. 
And all of these are important and interesting uh, areas of investigation, and they help us in our everyday life and in our scientific endeavors. So I'm not saying it's not yeah. important. Yeah. But in the ancient Hebrew mindset, knowledge is different. It's more experiential. If you yeah. want to know water, put your foot in the ocean. And yeah. then you know more. You know you don't know more about water than the Greek scientist, but you know water better than the Greek scientist because you have experienced it. And yeah. you, you feel, even just by putting your toe in the ocean, you feel that ocean yeah. to a certain extent in a way that you can't feel you can't you can't feel it or know it by looking at facts about the ocean. Yeah. So that's a different kind of knowledge. And it applies here also with regard to God and the name of God. You know, we might not know all of the facts about it, but you can begin to experience it. Hmm. So with that kind of mystery, you kind of touched on this a little bit. Uh, this is personally one of my favorite little snippets of your course. Uh, which I love because I think quantum physics is is something of an interesting concept and field of science right now. And you bring quantum mechanics into your course. I have never heard anyone <laughs> make the comparison between quantum mechanics or quantum physics and the name of God. Could you draw other people into the fun part of what quantum physics has to do with understanding the name of God? or the meaning of yod heh vav -Hey. Well, thank you, Cindy. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And I really enjoy quantum mechanics as well, the, to the extent that I understand it, of course. I'm not yeah. an expert in it. But, you know, many people think about science as solving questions of our existence right. or helping right. us answer questions about nature. And the interesting thing about quantum mechanics is that, that, is that it kind of puts the mystery back into nature. Hmm. Um, yeah. It gives us a lot more questions to think about. And this is one reason why Einstein didn't like it, in fact, at the hmm. beginning. And he was saying that this is too random. You know, God mm -hmm. doesn't roll dice in his famous uh, supposed attributed yeah. expression. You know, things are supposed to be more orderly. But actually, the biblical view is that God does do things that are very mysterious and beyond human mm -hmm. comprehension. And so quantum mechanics is kind of like that. But the specific way in which I made an analogy in the course to the name of God has to do with something that is called the superposition of mm -hmm. all possible states. Yes. Um, so in, yeah. And <laughs> so this is when it gets really weird. It does get weird. Um, I love in, it. <laughs> in one view of, of quantum physics, uh, before you measure a particle, it exists in all possible states at all times. It may, you know, all velocities, all orientations, whatever. And then once you take a measurement, then it collapses to a particular function. It, you know, it has a, a specific mm -hmm. velocity and momentum or whatever, spin. So I just made an analogy to the name of God, because one way that people have looked at the name of God in Hebrew is very similar, actually. They see it as expressing a kind of eternal existence in all dimensions, in all tenses, mm -hmm. in all times, in the past, the present, and the future. And uh, this, this can't exactly be proven, and not all scholars would agree with that point of view. But it's one way of interpreting the name of God, uh, which seems to be based on the Hebrew root for being or existence in a you know complex sort of uh, conjugation, perhaps. 
But one, one interpretation is that this is talking about the absolute, the eternal one who exists at all times and in all places. And if you try to define it more precisely, you will just reduce the, this absolute being to one hmm. of his aspects rather than standing in awe of the mystery that is incomprehensible. Yeah. And so how does that, so we take the Yodhe Vavhe and we, tend to pair it or we we interpret that into the English language. We say, I am. And so mm-hmm. using the English translation then, how would you translate the meaning, the aspect that is being reflected in the Hebrew language? Is it, I am, I was, I will be, or I am being, I was being? Like, how would we interpret that into an English translation? Well, I actually gave some sort of uh, translation in the course which was, I think, the eternally dynamically being one who is huh. an incomprehensible superposition of every kind. Yes, yes. So is that a good translation? That is, that's amazing. I love it. Or yod heh <laughs> Yes. It's not very pithy, but um, it expresses some of the difficulty yeah. of translating this name or getting at the meaning. Yeah. Now, by the way, I should say, this is one theory Right. of the name of God that we discuss. And we also discuss in the course other theories of what the name of God might mean. But the the precise meaning is a mystery to us at this distance of time and culture and language. Yeah. Um, but we can see that it's somehow connected with being, existence, and this might go a bit to a different theory, but probably with creation. Another view is that the name is mm. describing this particular God as the one who brings everything into existence. Uh, right. So, so again, linked to that aspect of uh, the creator as being the origin of of all of our existence. Okay, so you mentioned earlier the Ten Commandments, uh, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, mm-hmm. and one of them is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. At least in English, that's what it says. Yes. Uh, So we have a little bit of mystery over what the name means or a fullness of what the name means. But what does it mean to take the name in vain? Hmm. Hmm. Well, there are many views of this too, of course. But in Hebrew, it's saying um, lashav, which means something like for nothing, you know, to treat the name of God as if it's not what it really is, which is worthy of such utmost respect. And Hmm. in later tradition, both Jewish and Christian, interestingly enough, this came to be understood as, well, don't, don't even say the name because you might disrespect it. Hmm. But that's not the biblical example because we read in the biblical narratives of people saying the name of God. And in fact, hmm. the priests are instructed to p- put the name of God upon the people. And, you know, there are many sayings that, that include the name of God. Hmm. So in the ancient biblical view, you did say the name of God, but you shouldn't say it or use it in a way that would contradict what we said before about what name really means, the character of God, the identity of God, the the nature of God. So one part of that might be, for example, if you uh, swear an oath, very often people would swear by the name of a God. Uh, This could be uh, seen as having two very important dimensions. First of all, it's very important in the Bible that if you swear an oath, you keep it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's seen as a really serious offense to swear an oath and then not follow through with that. And in many cases, that would be swearing by the name of God. Another aspect is that you shouldn't swear something, shouldn't swear to do something that contradicts 
the nature of this particular deity and and the rules that he has for humanity and and how we should live. Hmm. So not taking the name of God in vain for nothing probably speaks to those elements. There may be more to it as well, but those are the things that come to mind for me first. Yeah, it's very different than when, or that explanation is different than when I was growing up in, I went to a Christian high school and they were sticklers for almost not even saying the word God, right? unless right. you're talking about the Bible, <laughs> you know, but you can go, oh God, or God forbid, or you couldn't say any of those things because that was taking the, the name in vain, mm-hmm. which is not really in line with the heart of what the Hebrew Bible is teaching us. Yeah. Yes, I would agree with you. That's a really interesting example because we see this in the religious traditions of both Judaism and yeah. Christianity. You know, even today, many super religious right. Jews avoid saying God, or even in English, they'll write a line, for example, G hyphen D, so that the word God, which is not the name of God, but even the word God is not written out, or even in Hebrew to say Elohim instead of Elohim, a substitute, not even for the name of God. We didn't talk so much yet about substitutes for the name of God, which happened at a particular point in history, but even substituting for the word God, which is just a generic word that talks about supernatural beings. So it's really curious that in in these religious traditions, that's how people interpret it. And I mean, I can't say for sure the reason, but I think that it has to do with the desire of religious authorities to always regiment life and, you know, define exactly how things Mm -hmm. are supposed to be done. I would argue, again, this isn't really the biblical Hebrew idea. There are rules in the Bible, but there are far fewer rules in the Torah than there are in later rabbinic Judaism or Christianity. You know, both rabbinic Judaism and official Christianity, whether Eastern or Western, have, you know, a plethora of rules to try to define everything that (laughs) far exceed the rules that are given in the the Hebrew Torah, the written one. So um, I think there is this, for some reason, there is this urge within religious hierarchies to define and delineate every particular case and to say what what a person should say or not say, do or not do. Hmm. Whereas if you think of the biblical Hebrew idea of knowledge, of experiencing the divine, right. yeah. it's a, it, there's more freedom in that. There's also more mystery, more awe, more difficulty in yeah. a sense. So am I understanding correctly that if we're looking at the Israelite So Hebrew Bible, but Hebrew Bible, and I'll say the earlier part of the Hebrew Bible. So let's say pre-Babylonian exile, that our best guess is the name of God was spoken out loud and used respectfully, but was actually spoken and known. And then at some point during the exile or after the exile in second temple period, is that when we start to bring in these substitutions for the name of God and kind of a lot more respect and mystery behind how to pronounce the name of God and using the name of God? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think you said it very well. Please continue if you want to uh, (laughs) say a little bit more. (laughs) Well, I'm curious. Now, uh, you mentioned the substitutions that we use because even in synagogues, people were reading out loud scriptures to the congregation and and someone, let's say someone stands up and is reading 
portions of the Torah and they get to yod Hey vav Hey. Mm-hmm. How do they pronounce it? What do they do if once we're entering Second Temple period, there's a, a hesitation about saying the name out loud carelessly? And so when you mm-hmm. get to the Tetragrammaton, what do you say instead? Well, with so many things when it comes to biblical studies, there is something that we can see in the ancient realities. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's something that we see in the Second Temple period that is an important development. And it's the same here with the name of God. So in the course, we do get into possible pronunciations, how it may have been pronounced in the earlier period. Uh, So people can look forward to that. This is where actually taking the course on the IBC website with Dr. Gruber is very helpful because he walks everyone through the details of the Hebrew verbs and the different options for how to say the words out loud. So if you need great visuals and want to hear the specifics, well, sign up for Dr. Gruber's course. Something does change in the Second Temple period. The question is what exactly changes and when and why. There are different theories here as well. We don't know exactly. We don't have all of the answers. Um, And to a certain extent, we have to go backwards a little bit because we can see from later texts, like the Mishnah, for instance, and um, the texts of what Christians call the New Testament, these Jewish Greek texts written by uh, Messianic followers of Mm -hmm. Jesus in the first century. We can see from texts like this and from various versions of the Septuagint and so forth, that by the second century, there's a tradition that comes to be followed in both the Jewish and the Christian worlds of not pronouncing the name of God. So we see substitutions even in writing. Sometimes it will be a symbol or an abbreviation that stands for the name of God or an ancient character, you know, a set of ancient characters that take the place of the name of God. Or sometimes, uh, very often in Greek, it will just be the word kyrios or kurios, um, which means Lord. And this is the origin of the substitution of the vast majority of biblical translations today that use simply the word Lord, which is very meaningless compared to the word Yudhevave. Right. But most translations will just use the word Lord to substitute for the name of God. And this goes back all the way, at least to the second century. Now, the question is how much further back than that does it go? And it may go back a few hundred years more um, to the time period before Jesus or Yeshua of Nazareth. It may have been a a change, a shift that took place in, let's say, the third and second century BCE when the Septuagint translation was being made, or it may be something that took place even after him. We Mm. we can't say for sure. Um, So that's a question that we get into in the course. So I'm going to ask a question and it might just fall into this. We don't, we don't know because something that is always true is there's mystery of, well, there's the historic event that happened and then there's a documenting of the event and sometimes they're not at the exact same time. So we have, for instance, in the New Testament, we have Jesus who's being asked by a lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? Hmm. And Jesus quotes from the Shema, so love the Lord your God. And again, we have Lord, yod Lord your God. And so what do we think if Jesus is quoting Hebrew Bible, 
but it's being documented for us in the Greek. And Jesus may have been speaking Hebrew to that lawyer or Aramaic, or, which is its own interesting debate. Do we know how Jesus himself would have quoted the name of God? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great question. You're asking me what he might have said and giving me the option of at least three different languages he might have said it in. There's lots of room for uncertainty here. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's part of the problem, you could say. But it's also something that needs to be recognized. And I think um, sometimes, I don't want to pick on religious people in, in general, but there's a particular aspect to religiosity that can go in the direction of seeking certainty. It's related to what we were saying before about, you know, how both rabbinic Judaism and official Christianity have followed certain trends. And you can see a lot of trends that are the same for uh, rabbinic Judaism and official Christianity. So there's there's something about this religious way of thinking that wants certainty about every aspect of things. The fact is, and I think more and more people who come from religious backgrounds, Jewish or Christian or other, are realizing this today. The fact is that we don't have certainty about mm-hmm. so many things. And we need to recognize this and grapple with it honestly. And actually, I would suggest that the earlier biblical way of looking at things was not, so to speak, religious. Um, there are some scholars who would argue that religion is an invention of the second century or the third or the fourth century even. Um, so before that time period, before there were these official religions, what was the biblical view? You know, how did people look at things? Well, there was a lot of acceptance of uncertainty and mystery, and mm-hmm. that was a big part of the relationship with the divine. Mm-hmm. And you can see this even, for example, in the writings of someone like Saul of Tarsus, who says yeah. in, I think, First Corinthians, um, if anyone thinks he knows something, he hasn't yet known as he ought to know. Which is a fascinating (laughs) paradox, because what he's saying is that um, true knowledge is knowing that you don't know, actually. And here again, we come to the Jewish and Greek thinking. There's an overlap. There's a mutual influence. Socrates says something very similar in Plato. But aside from all of that ancient background, which I do think is very important, but just as a human being living in any time or place, One of the most important things is we have to try to be as honest as we can when we're approaching any subject. And so to recognize that we don't know something is not something shameful. That's something honorable to say, well, we've looked at it and this is the current state of our knowledge. We can see certain hints, we can see certain aspects, but we don't have answers to all of the questions. And this, by the way, this type of approach would also take the edge off a lot of religious and other ideological disputes. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So is that a long way of saying you don't know how Jesus would have pronounced the name? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I forgot about the question. Shia, come on. (laughs) Um, Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Uh, I I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. Yeah. I think there's a strong possibility that, that he would have pronounced the name. Um, still, but there's a good argument to be made for saying that, you know, Jews at that time already didn't pronounce the name as well. So I I don't know. That's the answer. (laughs) But what we can say, and I think this would have been clear in the first century and in the second temple period, is that they would, that Jews of this time would have recognized the name of God. They were substituting for it, but they knew it existed. They knew they were alluding to it, including in Greek. 
when Kyrios is used in the Septuagint, people knew that it was standing in for the name of God. They knew it didn't just mean generically Lord. They knew this was a substitute for that name at whatever time period this took place. Just as they knew that about many other words in Jewish Greek that were really pointing back to Hebrew concepts from the Mm. scriptures, like uh, Christos, from which we get Christ. In the Greek world, this meant, you know, smeared with oil, something that you rubbed with oil. So in a literal sense, it was a good equivalent for Hebrew Mashiach, which means anointed. But in the Hebrew Bible, Mashiach means something more than just, you know, an object that has oil on it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> right. the, the anointing that comes from this particular God, this creator, mm. uh, relates to rulership. It relates to, you know, perhaps uh, prophecy. It relates to priestly function. So people, uh, Jews, let's say, of the first century, when they read in the Jewish Greek Septuagint translation, the word Christos, they knew it didn't just mean that there was a bit of oil on this person. They knew it was right. referring back to that Hebrew concept, Mashiach. So the same thing, I think, with uh, Kyrios, that they understood that this was a substitute for a very weighty and important component of the Hebrew Bible, whether or not they pronounced it still at that time. Which is a good, maybe to flag to people who are listening to this podcast that in the English translation anyway, in a lot of versions of the English translation, the two names together, Lord God, when you see Lord in all capital letters, that should be the flag in your mind to go, okay, I recognize this is a word here, but it should be taking me back to the mystery, the fullness of everything we've been talking about this this whole time. It, it's the personal name of God in all of its fullness. So it it can be if people are aware, if they're paying close attention and if they're reading and not listening when they hear or when they see Lord in all capitals, Lord God, then it's yod vav Hey God. That's right. I mean, most translations do give you this clue, the all capitals or something like yeah. that. But most, you know, probably most readers don't even know what that right. means or don't notice it. Right. I mean, right. you said you went to a Christian school. Did they teach you about this? Oh, uh, no. No, 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 no. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was, it was never brought up until I, I officially started doing biblical studies. And it's interesting because even as the topic of God's name has come more and more to the forefront of my mind, I then really started becoming sensitive to, for instance, going to academic conferences and having lots of Christians getting up in an academic conference, reading a paper and having Yahweh and them saying Yahweh all the way through their paper hmm. when there's all kinds of Jewish academic people in the audience. Right. And I always sit there with like, how, how do we all feel about this? <laughs> should we be saying Yahweh out loud or, or should we be using a, a substitute? And I actually almost breathed a sigh of relief because earlier on in the podcast, you actually said Yahweh. And I was like, okay. Interesting. Yeah. How should we feel about saying Yahweh out loud? Because Christians are quite liberal with it, or they can be quite liberal with that. I don't know how that's perceived in the Jewish community. Well, in the Jewish world, there's a conflict here because the tradition at a certain point in history, you know, whether it's the second century or whenever, 
decides that you're not supposed to say the name of God. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to pronounce it. And then steps are actually taken to obscure the pronunciation mm-hmm. so that people won't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, and later justifications for this are given as well to say that, well, if you pronounce the name correctly, it has magical properties. And this has to be a carefully guarded right. secret. You know, these are later justifications. But at a certain point, the tradition that claimed to be authoritative says, you shall not say the name of God. Again, mm-hmm. this is a departure from the earlier model. Right. Um, rabbinic Judaism is kind of a new development uh, in many respects. So religious Jews, uh, those who follow the rabbinic Orthodox tradition, don't want to say the name of God for that reason. But those who are academics or scholars or who have investigated this topic recognize that it's very important. The name itself is very important, and you can't talk about the text accurately without some way of distinguishing this word, this name, from all the other words or the generic titles and generic names uh, or just the word God, for example. And that's why at academic conferences, you'll often hear this for all the reasons that we've been talking about already in the podcast. You can't accurately reflect the text and talk about the environment of the time without using Mm -hmm. the name of God. So at the end of teaching this course that was full of all kinds of amazing information, is there a takeaway for you? That's a really good question. One takeaway is just how many additional questions come up um, as a result of that, of this exploration, and how many more courses you could do, Mm -hmm. uh, and how much more I have to learn about the name of God. Yeah. You know, and a second takeaway is really this assurance that it's okay not to know everything. And I see, I mean, it's something that I believed going into the course also, but it's something that I see from the students as well, that they gain this kind of confidence or assurance that, okay, we can look at things from a logical perspective, having our faith, but having faith doesn't mean that I have to pretend that I have all the answers when I don't. I can I can still seek to know the creator without knowing every detail about how the name is supposed to be pronounced or something like that. And part of I think understanding something like the name of God in the char- coming to coming to realize the character of the creator is to realize that well even if I don't know exactly how his name was pronounced at some particular historical period because for sure the pronunciation changed just like yeah. the pronunciation of every word in every language changes over time. Even if I don't know exactly how, you know, someone in Israel pronounced it in the 8th century BCE, for example. <laughs> right. I can still come to know this creator, the the yeah. the one who made everything that is. That's not what it's about. It's not about coming to know some tiny fact of pronunciation. Mm-hmm. It's about something much grander and more magnificent than that. Thank you for joining me as we have explored concepts related to knowing the personal name of God. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you are listening to your podcast. Leave a review so other people can find us and then tell your family and friends to listen as well. 
I welcome your contributions to the conversation. So share your thoughts with me on Twitter. I am at Cindy Parker, PhD, C-Y-N-D-I Parker, PhD, or send me an email at cparker at israelbiblecenter.com. If you like what you hear in this podcast, you will love the wide variety of courses available online at the Israel Bible Center. Those courses dive into ancient Jewish literature, history, Jewish culture and customs, rabbinics, theology, and biblical languages. Thanks to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds that you hear. And thanks to you for listening in and being curious about the Bible. I look forward to our conversation next week.